Hello everyone, welcome back to the Forgotten Books Podcast. I'm your host, Annika, and today we will be continuing on through The Princess and the Goblin. I apologize for being away for so long, it's, you know, the world's been crazy. Anyways, let's get back to chapter 11 of The Princess and the Goblin. Chapter 11, The Old Lady's Bedroom. Nothing more happened worth telling for some time. The autumn came and went by. There were no more flowers in the garden. The wind blew strong and howled among the rocks. The rain fell and drenched the few yellow and red leaves that could not get off the bare branches. Again and again there would be a glorious morning followed by a pouring afternoon, and sometimes for a week altogether there would be rain and nothing but rain all day, and then the most lovely cloudless night, with the sky all out in full-blown stars, not one missing. But the princess could not see much of them, for she went to bed early. The winter drew on, and she found things growing dreary. When it was too stormy out, and she had got tired of her toys, Lutie would take her about the house, sometimes to the housekeeper's room, where the housekeeper, who was a good, kind old woman, made much of her sometimes to the servants' hall or the kitchen, where she was not a princess merely, but an absolute queen, and ran a great risk of being spoiled. Sometimes she would run off herself to the room where she met the men-at-arms, whom the king had left sat, and they would show her their arms and accoutrements, and did what they could to amuse her. Still at times she found it very dreary, and often wished that her huge great-grandmother had not been a dream. One morning the nurse left her with the housekeeper for a while. To amuse her she turned out the contents of an old cabinet upon the table. The little princess found her treasures, queer ancient ornaments, and many things the use of which she could not imagine, far more interesting than her own toys, and sat and played with them for two hours or more. But at length, in handling the curious old-fashioned brooch, she ran the pin of it into her thumb, and gave a little scream with the sharpness of the pain, but would have thought little more of it had not the pain increased and her thumb begun to swell. This alarmed the housekeeper greatly. The nurse was fetched, the doctor was sent for, her hand was poulticed, and long before her usual time she was put to bed. The pain still continued, and although she fell asleep and dreamed a good many dreams, there was the pain always in every dream, and at last it woke her up. The moon was shining brightly into the room. The poultice had fallen off her hand and was burning hot. She fancied if she could hold it up into the moonlight that it would cool. So she got out of bed without waking the nurse who lay at the other end of the room, and went to the window. When she looked out, she saw one of the men-at-arms walking in the garden, with the moonlight glancing on his armour. She was going to tap on the window and call for him, for she wanted to tell him about it. When she bethought herself that she might wake up Lutie, and she would put her into bed again, so she resolved to go to the window of another room and call him from there. It was so much nicer to have someone to talk to than to lie and wake in bed with the burning pain in her hand. She opened the door very gently and went through the nursery, which did not look into the garden, to go to the other window. But when she came to the foot of the old staircase, there was a high moon shining down from some window high up, 
and making the worm-eaten oak look very strange, delicate, and lovely. In a moment, she was putting her little feet one after another in the silvery path up the stair, looking behind as she went to see the shadow they made in the middle of the silver. Some little girls would have been afraid to find themselves thus alone in the middle of the night, but Irene was a princess. As she went slowly up the stair, not quite sure that she was not dreaming, suddenly a great longing woke up in her heart to try once more to see whether she could find the old lady with the silvery hair. If she is a dream, she said to herself, then I am the likelier to find her, and if I am dreaming... So up and up she went, stair after stair, until she came to the many rooms, all just as she had seen them before. Through passage after passage, she softly sped, comforting herself that if she would lose her way, it would not matter much, because when she woke, she would find herself in her own bed with Luti not far off. But, as if she had known every step of the way, she had walked straight over the door at the foot of the narrow stair that led to the tower. What if I should find my really, really, really beautiful grandmother up there? She said to herself as she crept up the steep steps. When she reached the top of the stair, she stood a moment listening in the dark, for there was no moon up there. Yes, yes it was. It was the hum of the spinning wheel. What a diligent grandmother to be working both the day and night. She tapped gently on the door. Come in, Irene, said a sweet voice. The princess opened the door and entered. There was the moonlight streaming in at the window, and in the middle of the moonlight sat the old lady, in a black dress with white lace and a silvery hair mingling with the moonlight, so that you could not have told which is which. Come in, Irene, she said again. Can you tell me what I am spinning? She speaks, thought Irene, just as if she had seen me five minutes ago, or yesterday at the farthest. No, she answered. I do not know what you are spinning. Please, I thought you were a dream. Why could I not find you before, great-great-grandmother? That you are hardly old enough to understand. But you would have found me sooner if you would not come to think I was a dream. I will give you no one reason why you could not find me. I did not want you to find me. Why, please? because I did not want Lutie to know I was here. But you told me to tell Lutie. Yes, but I knew Lutie would not believe you. If she were to see me sitting spinning here, she would not believe me either. Why? Because she couldn't. She would rub her eyes and go away saying she felt queer and forgotten half of it more and then just say it had all been a dream. Just like me said Irene, feeling very much ashamed of herself. Yes, a good deal like you, but not just like you, for you've come again, and Lutie wouldn't have come again. She would have said no, no, she would have had enough of such nonsense. Is it naughty of Lutie, then? It would be naughty of you. I've never done anything for Lutie. And you did wash my face and hands for me, said Irene, beginning to cry. The old lady smiled a sweet smile and said, I am not vexed with you, my child, nor with Lutie either, but I do not want you to say anything more to Lutie about me, 
If she should ask, you must be silent, but I do not think she will ask you. All the time they talked, the old lady kept on spinning. You haven't told me yet what I am spinning, she said. Because I do not know. It is very pretty stuff. Indeed, it was very pretty stuff. There was a good bunch of it on the distaff attached to the spinning wheel, and in the moonlight it shone like... Oh, what shall I say it was like? It was not white enough for silver. Yes, it, it was like silver, but it shone grey rather than white, and glittered only a little, and the thread the old lady drew from it was so fine that Irene could hardly see it. I am spinning it for you, my child. For me? What am I to do with it, please? I will tell you by and by, but first I will tell you what it is. It is spiderweb of a particular kind. My pigeons bring it to me from over the great sea. It is only one forest where the spiders live who make this particular kind. The finest and strongest of any. I have nearly finished my present job. What is on the rock now will be enough. I have a week's work there, though. She added, looking at the bunch. Do you work all day and all night too, great-great-great-great-grandmother? said the princess, thinking to be very polite with so many greats. I am not so great as all that, she answered, smiling almost merrily. If you call me grandmother, that will do. I don't work every night, only moonlit nights. Then no longer than the moon shines upon my wheel. I shan't work on it much longer tonight. And what will you do next, grandmother? Go to bed. Would you like to see my bedroom? Yes, that I should. Then I don't think I'll work any longer tonight. I shall be in good time. The old lady rose and left her spinning wheel, just as it was. You see, there was no good in putting it away, for there were not any furniture, and there were no danger of being untidy. Then she took Irene by the hand, but it was her bad hand, and Irene gave a little cry of pain. My child, said her grandmother, what is the matter? Irene held her hand into the moonlight, that the old lady might see it, and told her all about it, at which she looked grave, but she only said, Give me your other hand, and having led her upon the little dark landing, opened the door opposite of it. What was Irene's surprise to see the loveliest room she had ever seen in her life? It was large, lofty, and dome-shaped, for the centre hung a lamp as round as a ball, shining as if with the brightest of moonlight, which made everything visible in the room, though not so clearly that the princess could tell what many of the things were. A large oval bed stood in the middle with a covered side of rose collar, and velvet curtains all around it of a lovely pale blue. The walls were also blue, spangled all over with what looked like stars of silver. The old lady left her and was going to a strange-looking cabinet, opened it up, took out a curious silver casket. Then she sat down on a low chair and, calling Irene, made her kneel before her while she took a look at her hand. Having examined it, she opened the casket and took from it a little ointment. The sweetest odour filled the room, like that of roses and lilies. As she rubbed the ointment gently all over the hot, swollen hand, her touch was so pleasant and cool that it seemed to drive away the pain and heat wherever it came. Gra 
grandmother, it's so nice, said Irene. Thank you, thank you. Then the old lady went to a chest of drawers and took out a large handkerchief of gossamer-like chambray, which she tied around her hand. I don't think I can let you go away tonight, she said. Would you like to sleep with me? Oh, yes, yes, dear grandmother, said Irene, who would have clapped her hands, forgetting that she could not. You won't be afraid, then, to go to bed with such an old woman. No, you are so beautiful, grandmother. But I am very old. And I suppose I am very young. You won't mind sleeping with such a very young woman, grandmother. You are sweet little pertness, said the old lady, and drew her towards her and kissed her on the forehead and the cheek and the mouth. Then she got a large silver basin, and having poured some water into it, made Irene sit on the chair and washed her feet. This done, she was ready for bed, and oh, what a delicious bed it was into which her grandmother laid her. She could hardly have told how she was lying upon anything. She felt nothing but softness. Why don't you put out your moon? asked the princess. That never goes out night or day, she answered. In the darkest night, if any of my pigeons are out on a message, they will always see my moon and know where to fly to. But if someone besides the pigeons were to see it, somebody about the house, I mean, they would come to look, and it was, and find you. The better for them, said the old lady. But it has not happened about five times in a hundred years that anyone sees it. The greater part of those who do take it for a meteor wink their eyes and forget it again. Besides, no one could tell find the room except I pleased. Besides, again, I will tell you a secret, that if the light were to go out, you would fancy yourself lying in a bare garret on a heap of old straw, and you would not see one of the pleasant things around you all the time. I hope it will never go out said the princess. I hope not, but it is time we both went to sleep. Shall I take you in my arms? The little princess nestled close up to the old lady, who took both her arms and held her close to her bosom. Oh dear, this is so nice, said the princess. I didn't know anything in the world could be so comfortable. I should like to lie here forever. You may, if you will said the old lady, but I must put you to one trial, not a very hard one, I hope. This night, this week, you must come back to me. If you don't, I do not know when you may find me again, and you will soon want me very much. Oh, please don't let me forget. You shall not forget. The only question is whether you will believe I am anywhere, whether you will believe I am anything but a dream. You may be sure I will do all I can to help you come, but it will rest with yourself after all. On the night of next Friday, you must come to me, mind now. I will try, said the princess. Then good night, said the old lady, and kissed the forehead which lay on her bosom. In a moment, the little princess was dreaming in the midst of the loveliest dreams of summer seas and moonlight and mossy springs and great murmuring trees 
and the beds of wildflowers with such odours as she had never smelt before. But, after all, no dream could be more lovely than what she had left behind when she fell asleep. In the morning she found herself in her own bed. There was no handkerchief or anything else on her hand, only a sweet odour lingered about it. The swelling had gone down and the prick of the brooch had vanished. In fact, her hand was perfectly well. Chapter 12 A short chapter about Curdie Curdie spent many nights in the mine. His father and he had taken Mrs. Peterson into the secret, for they knew that mother could hold her tongue, which was more than could be said of all the other miners' wives. But Curdie did not tell her that every night he spent in the mine, part of it went into earning a new red petticoat for her. Mrs. Peterson was such a good and nice mother. All mothers are nice and good, and more or less, but Mrs. Peterson was nice and good all more, and no less. She made and kept a little heaven in that poor cottage on the high hillside for her husband and son to go home out of the low and rather dreary earth in which they worked. I doubt if the princess was very much happier, even in the arms of her huge great-grandmother, than Peter and Curdie were in the arms of Mrs. Peterson. True. Her hands were hard and chapped and large, but it was with work for them, and therefore in the sight of the angels her hands were so much more the beautiful. And if Curly worked hard to get her a petticoat, she worked hard every day to get him comforts, which he would have missed much more than she would a new red petticoat for the winter. Not that she and Curdie ever thought of how much they worked for each other, that would have spoiled everything. When left alone in the mine, Curdie always worked for an hour or two at first, following the load which, according to Glump, would lead at last into the deserted habitation. After that, he would set out on an expedition. In order to manage this, or rather, the return from it, better than the first time, he had bought a huge ball of fine string. Having learned the trick from Hop O My Thumb, whose history his mother had often told him, not that Hop O My Thumb had ever used a ball of string, I should be sorry to suppose so far out in my classics, but the principle was the same of that of the pebbles. The end of the string he fastened to his pickaxe, which figured not a bad anchor, and then, with the ball in his hand, unrolling it as he went, set out in the dark through the natural gangs of the goblin's territory. The first night or two he came upon nothing worth remembering, saw only that a little home life of the cobs in various caves they called houses, failed in coming upon anything to cast light upon, the foregoing design which kept the inundation for the present in the background. But at length, I think on the third or fourth night, he found, partly guided by the noise of the implements, a company of evidently the best snappers and miners among them hard at work. What were they about? It could not be well be the inundation, seeing that in the meantime had been postponed to something else. Then what was it? He lurked and watched every now and then, in great risk of being detected, but without success. He had again and again to retreat into haste, and proceeding rendering more difficult than he had to gather up his string, and returned upon its course. It was not that he was afraid of the goblins, 
but that he was afraid of their finding out that they were watched, which might have prevented the discovery at which he aimed. Sometimes his haste had to be such that when he reached home towards morning, his string, for the lack of time to wind it up as he dodged the cobs, would be in what seemed the most hopeless entanglement. But after a good sleep, though a short one, he always found his mother had got it all right again. There it was, wound into the most respectable ball, ready to be used the moment he should want it. I can't think of how you do it, mother, he would say. I follow the thread, she would answer. Just so that you don't mind. She never had more to say about it. But the less clever she was with her words, the more clever she was with her hands. And the less his mother said, the more Curly believed she had to say. But still, he made no discovery as to what the goblin miners were about. And that concludes chapters 11 and 12 of The Princess and the Goblin. Thank you so much for listening. I am trying to get a schedule back in order. We'll see how it goes. Um, so I'm recording today. Hopefully I'll re- be able to record two podcasts. We'll see. I'm trying. So, anyways, thank you so much for listening and tuning in and supporting the podcast. And remember, never forget about these books. Bye!